this is my life's calling. Like I have been built and broken and rebuilt to do this for myself because I have the most affinity towards it and the most love for it. And I think a very deep rooted why. Also a hell of a lot of experience. I remember working with a lot of people and like, oh, I, I didn't go to the gym because like oh, I stubbed my toe or like, I'm just really tired. I'm like, yeah, but you know, try learning how to walk again, you know, and still making it into therapy four times a week, you know. There are a lot of times that I didn't want to get out of bed and I'm just kind of being facetious now. I Sometimes I had to pull that card in that kind of way, but I felt like I was just a very good example for the types of people I was working with of what we can achieve when we decide we want it. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage Podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to our episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Chase Tuning. Chase is an Army veteran and the host of the wildly popular podcast, Ever Forward Radio. Before going from health coach to podcaster, Chase served in the military, and after six years of active duty, he was medically discharged due to a string of injuries that ultimately required him to have bilateral reconstructive hip surgeries. After learning how to walk again, exercise as medicine, making healthy lifestyle modifications, and helping others do the same became his passion. In today's conversation, we dive deep into Chase's story and chat about how the loss of his father during his time in the Army led to a path of self-sabotage, causing emotional pain and physical injuries that ultimately forced him to retire from the military. We also discuss how he transformed his mental health and dealt with his suppressed, deep-rooted trauma. Chase also opens up about his struggles with male friendships and the recent discovery of his true self. A major theme of today's convo revolves around how he's turned his gratitude for his past experiences into a career of helping others transform their bodies and minds, inspiring them to live a life ever forward. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Chase Tuning to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Chase, welcome to the podcast. Doug, good to see you again, man. It's been a long time coming, man. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, it has been a long time coming, and I'm super excited to chat with you today. You have a quite an inspiring story and have accomplished so much personally and professionally. And I want to dive into your story, but I think a good place to start is there's so many, there's a lot of men struggling with their mental health right now and having a hard time improving it, having a hard time talking about it. I know you've had your struggles with it and know a lot of people who have as well. What are a few things that you found to be hyper successful for you as far as improving your mental health and healing from your past trauma and pain? That is the million dollar question, huh, man? I'll start off first by kind of maybe going the non-obvious route. And by that, I mean, well, the second part, what I'll answer is, you know, actually prioritizing my mental health, getting professional mental health help, and just really going into the head and the heart. But a lot of ways that I have found benefits to my mental health by just bringing awareness to it or you know making it better is actually to keep making my physical health a priority. When we do that, when we are daily physically active, when we are making time for exercise, getting just kind of like the bare minimum done, my bare minimum, I mean, you know, are you getting 10,000 steps a day? 
Are you moving your body in the format, in the container of exercise three to four times a week? Are you getting your heart rate up to a certain level for a certain amount of time? Are you getting proper sleep? Are you aware of what and how and why your body moves in a, in a regular manner? Because we know that all of that contributes to better mental health through the things of stress management, of weight management, of being more, shout out our homie Gabrielle Lyon, more muscle centric, staying in favor of muscle mass over body fat mass, balancing hormones, keeping insulin at bay, potentially thwarting things like metabolic disease, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and just, you know, all the things that when we make a priority to take care of our body, our body then kind of in turn takes care of our mind. And I did that for a long time. But beyond that, it was kind of realizing, well, I can't even say realize, I have to say being really radically woke up, shaken up, quite literally, to the fact that I was not prioritizing my mental health. And that no matter how hard I tried to keep a healthy body or maintain healthy physical habits, it was literally just a matter of time before the poor mental health and lack of mental health training creep back up. It's this analogy, really, I think the best way I can describe it of a beach ball that, you know, I was kind of just suppressing and stuffing down and holding underneath the water by getting stronger and figuring out new ways to do that. But it's only, again, a matter of time before, you know, it just comes rising, shooting back up to the top. And then you're probably dealing with a much larger issue, a more difficult, more painful, more troublesome, more acute, more stressful issue or series of issues in that scenario when you could have maybe mitigated that all along. So for me now on the other side of prioritizing my mental health, I'll say continuously honoring and respecting my physical body, prioritizing physical activity, exercise, sleep, and just making this vessel as best and optimize as much as possible by my standards, and then also supplementing with actual mental health, regular mental health care, such as therapy, psychotherapy, for me, even psychedelic psychotherapy, but, you know, journaling, having mentors, um, having deep, meaningful relationships with people uh, to be sounding boards, you know, all that kind of stuff comes secondary now. Thanks for sharing all that, man. And I, I want to ask, like, you mentioned that Physical health has always been important to you and it's crucial for your mental health. But you also mentioned that without working on the other side of things, without actually working on your mental health, the physical health eventually will run its course, right? And you said you felt like you were suppressing all this pain and trauma in your life and eventually it was bound to just explode. What was going on in your life at that time where the ball came out of the water? Like what was your relationships like? What was your work life like? And then like, how did you begin to unpack all that? Well, you know, Doug, I actually have a really, really specific way to answer that. So I want to take you and the listener back to back to my couch, summer 2015. I was living in Northern Virginia, right outside of DC at the time with my younger brother. And I was actually on the couch with my then girlfriend, now wife. But actually, honestly, at the time, I, I didn't know if she was my girlfriend. I didn't know if I was her boyfriend. We were we were going through some stuff. So, I mean, you asked the question there, you know, my relationships, Mike, the most meaningful relationship to me at that time was really under question. And, you know, we had been together a couple of years and we were going through some, some difficult questions about who we are as individuals and what we wanted for our future. And there I was on the couch, you know, 
kind of reconciling, having some time with her. We're actually watching a movie. I forget the exact movie. I think it was actually one of the Divergent series. And there was a death scene. And someone died, and they were on this crash cart, medical cart, if you will. And there was this, this sheet that was just like draped over them. And at that moment, I began to just hyperventilate. I began to sweat profusely. I began to black out. I began to just shake uncontrollably. Next thing I knew, a few seconds, a few minutes later, I don't really know the time, I was literally being shook back awake by, by her, May. And she was just really, first of all, concerned about me, my health, like what was going on, what happened. But this wasn't unfortunately new to her. She knew why I had that response. She knew that this was a trigger for me for something that I had been suppressing for years of knowing her, but years much longer than even before I met her around the death of my father, this traumatic experience I had with his death. And at that time, undiagnosed PTSD. So it was a very real and literal wake-up call, physical wake-up call by someone in my life that I cared deeply about that thankfully cared that much about me to not only physically wake me up, but mentally and emotionally wake me up. And after, of course, making sure I was okay, we had this kind of very, very hard conversation, or, or I should say rather, she put me in my place with some tough love of, I love you, I want you to love you. And in order for both of these things to happen, you need to work on this part of yourself. Because at the time, I was the leanest I had ever been. I had just gotten promoted in the workforce. I you know, was mo literally moving up in life, geographically, professionally, physically. I was doing everything else but taking care of the biggest work that I needed to. And that was around this traumatic event of the death of my father. And so after kind of having that, that wake up call, I realized a couple things. I realized that my body, my mind, my soul cannot take this suppression, this ignoring, this disrespect of this area of my wellness anymore. But also, and it's like, it almost needed to happen in the way that it did. And I needed to be told this by her because I don't think until that moment I cared enough about myself or anyone else to focus on my mental health. But once, once the thought of me not doing this could yield us not being together, that sunk in. So I immediately had all these contributing factors come together and a lot of these realizations of what I want my future life to look and feel like. And she was a part of it. Like she was it. Like I want to build my life with you. And so um, once that kind of reality set in, that's when I realized like, this is what it's going to take. This is what she needs to see in order for this relationship to work, but also more, more than just her, like she wants this for me. So like in order for me to be around and to be happy and keep moving forward, I need to kind of chill on everything else. And now's the time to shift priorities on the mental health aspect. Thanks for opening up and sharing that, man. And I, I imagine it had to have been kind of challenging to be able to admit that you're not okay and that you're having problems and being willing to kind of let your guard down and want to work on yourself and the relationship. And I want to dive more into that journey, but I want to first go back because I know a lot of this stemmed from pain and trauma that you experienced 
as a teenager, right? I think you were 19 years old, right? Your dad unexpectedly, you know, kind of passed away and from ALS and you're in the military, which was also a traumatic experience for you. So walk the listeners through, like from the time you got that call with what happened with your dad, like what was life like then? And then how did that like impact the rest of your career in the military and what eventually led to you like leaving the military? You know, when I got that call, that's a really unique way to put it um, because there are two calls that I got that had the most significance and most impact on not only the trajectory of a military career, but the rest of my life. The first one came a few months actually. I had just enlisted. I went through boot camp. I enlisted actually at age 17, right out of high school. I joined the army, signed a six-year contract. I was going into a, a really unique job in military intelligence. And a few months in, after my first time home, actually, I came home for Christmas. My family, unbeknownst to me, spent our last kind of family time together at Christmas. I had this phone call with my dad and my stepmom afterwards at the time where they really kind of just shared with me this diagnosis that he had already received and was waiting to kind of share with the rest of the family that I'm sick. There's no way out of this for me. It's just going to be a matter of trying to maintain quality of life for the next few months. That call for me sent me spiraling, so much so that I actually tried to drop what's called hardship paperwork in the military. If you can prove you have a hardship back home where there's a, more of a need for you than the more of the needs in the military at the time, you might be able to find a way out. And true to my father's character, he was not going to let me take the easy way out. And so I used to say he then came out and spent four days with me talking me out of that decision. But that wouldn't be fair to him, wouldn't be fair to the, wouldn't be fair to the man that he was or true to the experience we had. He spent four days being a father with me, quite literally the last few days that he could walk and talk. And so he spent time with me to let me know really that he was at such wild, weird, ununderstandable by me peace with his situation that he didn't want that to be an extra burden on me or to change the decision that I had made in the path that I had set out on for the rest of my life, you know, as a teenager now, flying the coop, doing my own thing. And so I decided to stay in. And then fast forward about a year later, almost exactly, I was home on emergency leave, trying to be there around with my family. The doctors had called uh, my unit and said, you know, hey, it's literally a matter of hours or days. So I luckily was home for the last couple of days of him being alive. But after spending about two or three days by his side in the hospital bed, just this, this shell, frail existence of a man, I had to go home and get some rest. And I was, my goal was to try to be there by his side literally when he passed, but it just wasn't meant to be. And so I went home and I think I, I laid my head down for maybe about an hour or two when I got the next phone call that really imprinted the trauma on my life. And it was a call from a family member that he had passed and they were sending a family friend to come pick me up. And in that moment, I remember distinctly, my entire world went black. It was like a vacuum. There was no air, no sound, no noise, no feeling, no touch, no hope, no, no nothing. It was just, just a vacuum of every negative emotion I could ever experience happened all simultaneously. I like blacked out for a second. I wanted to, I believe I fell to my knees and I remember just letting out this just primal scream of just like my soul 
was screaming. My soul was yelling. I, I was screaming from the very depths of my entire existence and just pain. But then was in that moment when call it lack of mental or emotional intelligence, call it at that time being a soldier for a year and a half and having to really compartmentalize my feelings for the sake of the mission. You know, like I, I quickly came to and realized there's someone to come pick me up. I need to get my shit together. I'm going to be going to the hospital where my father is laying in a hospital bed, passed away, surrounded by family members. I'm the oldest brother. I'm now the man of the house. All these kind of real or bullshit reasons to suppress that happened for me at the exact same moment when I was trying, my body was naturally trying to, to process this loss. And I shut it off and I, I shut it up. And then when I showed up to the hospital, I was just, I was soldier chase. I was completely stoic. I was emotionless. I was trying to be everything I thought I needed to be for everybody else there. And I was not being what I needed for me at that moment. And that was a vulnerable human being who needed to cry, needed to feel, and needed to just do all that with his family at the feet of their dead father. So those were the two calls, man, that really imprinted on me everything that you know I then spent the next several years running from, avoiding, and especially in the military, so much so I saw an out. I was like, this pain is just too much. I I don't have the tools. I told myself that I don't have the tools. I don't have the ability. I don't have the support system. I don't have fucking anybody to go cry my shoulder onto because if I do, especially in the army at that time, this is at the height of Operation Iraqi Freedom, Enduring Freedom, 2003 to 2009 was my term. There's a very strong stigma. There's a very strong stigma that could get me kicked out, that could prevent me from getting promoted, that could prevent me from doing anything I want in my career. And so I felt like, you know what? Maybe that's what I do. Maybe I just take this and I bottle it up and I take it over there. So I began to pursue deployments, pursue different job opportunities outside of my traditional MOS, my traditional day air court here, nine to five in the military, because I just, I didn't care if I lived or died anymore. I thought, what a way to go, to go do what I signed up to do, to serve my country, to die on the battlefield, and to come home wrapped in a box, wrapped in a flag, just the way my father was buried. And then also I would know that my family would be financially taken care of. At that time, they had just increased the life insurance plan to about $400,000. And for me, coming from a very, very small town in the Southwest of Virginia, uh, not growing up with really a lot of money at all, like I knew what that meant for my family. That's what ultimately set me on the path to trying to make that happen. Call it God, call it universe, call it my dad stepping in, whatever you want to believe. In war game, preparation for a deployment process I was pursuing, uh, I actually wound up suffering the injuries that ultimately led me to getting medically discharged out of, actually medically retired out of the army, tore my hamstring, suffered trauma to my hips and my back, my L4 and L5 kind of went one way, rest of my spine kind of went another way, wound up having to have both of my hips completely reconstructed. So intense that I actually got pulled not only from that, that training, but any deployment opportunity, I even got pulled from my regular job. I got transplanted bases and I just became a patient for the next year and a half. All I did was just go through surgeries. I was in the hospital, out of the hospital, in rehab, just really learning how to rebuild my lower half, you know, rewalking, learning how to rewalk again twice actually, in pursuit of trying to just escape the pain and you know, talk about it, feel it, take care of my mental health, it completely 
brought me to my knees and completely ruined my physical health. And so much so that I went through all that and then had to rebuild my physical life after the military, but in a really cool way, because that actually was the catalyst for learning the human body, learning exercises, medicine, and put me on the path to everything I'm doing now in terms of school, being a professional health coach, and living now in kind of this health wellness world. Thanks for sharing all that, man. And obviously, losing your dad was incredibly painful and traumatic in your life. I'm curious, like, was the the level of anger and hatred that you had developed like after that point, did that come from specifically just losing your father or was it more also the fact that you weren't there for him in those last minutes and that you in a way felt like you betrayed your family because you couldn't share, you know, open up emotionally at a time when you feel like they needed you the most. We will get you back to this episode of the adversity advantage in just one second but first, wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I have been using for quite some time now. Lately, I have been trying to use it as an alternative to coffee as I am trying to cut back. I can say I think it might be working. Using it can be as simple as adding it to a smoothie or mixing it with water or your favorite nut milk. Cacao Bliss starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to eartheckofoods.com slash Again, it's eartheckofoods.com slash to check it out and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. You know, to that last point, Doug, I, I didn't even know that that was a thing. I didn't even know that was part of it. But looking back, absolutely. Again, like I said earlier, I was a soldier. I was the oldest of three. I'm the older brother. I, I'm now in, in my mind, by my definition, I'm the man of the house, but I'm not even in the house anymore. So how can I covered down on that role? How can I fill my father's shoes? How can I be present for my grandmother, my stepmom, my mom, my brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, all my family that we had around at the time? Again, but now I know like nobody asked me to do that. But that was the story I was telling myself of the role that I should have played, that I needed to play. They're not going to ask for help, but they need my help. And taking on that burden, kind of self-proclaiming of what I needed to do, should have done for them was to my detriment. But it was a definitely a double-edged sword because I also was then suppressing everything that I needed to do for me by avoiding crying every time it came up, by literally running out of movie theaters whenever there was a death scene, by turning off the radio when I would hear a song that would remind me of him, you know, like literally changing my day-to-day -day life. But absolutely, I also felt some kind of way about not being there when he was sick, even though he told me that he's fine and that he wants me to continue on with this journey I chose for my life. Even though trying to come home, every time I had leave or like a three-day weekend or you know, I could leave you know, wherever I was in the world to come home for 24 hours, three days, whatever, no matter how hard I tried to be there for him and with him, it just never seemed to be. 
actually, Doug, I'll, I'll share something with you. One of the most intense, dark moments for me in this journey was actually a moment I just randomly came home in the middle of the night, and I actually thought that I caused my father's death. I was about to fly home from visiting the other side of my family, a couple hours away from where my dad was living. And in the middle of the night, I got in the car and I drove about three hours, three and a half hours to visit him in the hospital. Luckily, the hospital, the staff knew what we were going through. They let me in, definitely outside of visitation hours. And my father, with ALS, it's, it's a very cruel disease. You know, you're literally just withering away. The body's eating itself alive. But what we know about it is that, you know, the mind is still there. It's even more difficult to be in this situation when you can walk into a room and see someone, watch them just wither away and die, like I said. But when you lock eyes with them, you know that, like, you see me. You see me, you know who I am, and we're just trying to communicate. You're trying to communicate with me through your eyes. And uh, he kind of came to, we woke him up, and I came in because I honestly thought this was going to be the last time I ever saw him. And I wanted one more time with him. And he, rec he recognized that in me. He knew this was me not just coming back just for another hello, like, this is goodbye. And he had no control over his throat, over the muscles of his throat, really the muscles of any of his parts of his body anymore. And so as he began to get emotional, he began to like seize up and lock up, you know, as we all do when we get emotional, you know, the throat tightens, we, we cry, the body goes through some really unique muscular experiences, so much so that he, he, dings began to go off things machines began to make noises things all the you know all the noises and things that you see in the movies of like when people are crashing or dying and he began to weep and he began to convulse and i just began to realize like oh shit like i'm killing my dad and so i just ran out of the room and i remember two or three other nurses just came running in i haven't thought about this in a long time damn i thought i actually caused the death of my father by trying to say goodbye. And so I think that imprinted on me in a very unique way that no matter what I try to do, it's not going to go according to plan. And in fact, it's actually going to be to my detriment. It's actually going to cause more problems. Um, so I remember just running out of the hospital, getting in my car, driving three, three and a half more hours. And then the next day flying back to where I was stationed at the time, um, just trying to process like, did I kill my father? Um, luckily he had a few more months with us, actually, no, a couple more weeks, excuse me. Um, and then, uh, I came back home and wasn't there when he took his last breath, but definitely his last few. Again, thanks for being open and, and sharing this, man. I'm just glad that you're, we're able to have these types of conversations because, I mean, these are hard to have and hopefully people listening to this and invites them to not only like work on some of their stuff from their past, but also talk a bit more about like some of the things that they're struggling with. I want to go back to your military experience in that you mentioned that as soon as you heard the news about your dad, it became like this self-destructive, attempted self-destructive path in the military, right? And then eventually you found yourself physically injured and you know, having to have your hips reconstructed and the very thing that you had prided yourself in, which was being strong, being healthy, you know, it all came crashing down. Like, do you think that looking back and you've done a lot of work spiritually on yourself as well, do you look back and think that that was just like the universe in a way purposefully putting you through that so that it could potentially stop you from doing something you wouldn't have wanted to do in the military and then leading you to what you're doing now? Wholeheartedly. You know, looking back, I can say that, of course, 
And especially when I really critically look at myself, not with judgment, not with hatred, but you know, truly through critical eyes, but, lo- but loving eyes, I really do have gratitude for the way things unfolded. Because let's say, you know, I did make it through that training environment and I did get picked up for that next deployment and I did go over there, as we call it. And I was in a position to choose how much or how little I wanted to hold the standard, how much or how little I cared about my own safety. And in the military and damn sure in a combat environment, the level to which you care about your safety and security and survival is also the same level to which you care about the safety, security, and survival of the men and women to the left and right of you. For me to go over there and to, I mean, who, who knows what I actually would have done or not have done, but you know, with that kind of intention in mind, even just a hesitation, just a brief second in a war zone could have resulted in my injury, my death, but also the injury or death of other people, that would have been the most unfair, selfish thing I could have ever done. God forbid, let's say that did happen and, and I survived something, but because of my hesitation or my choice, somebody else didn't. That would have been on me. And that is something that recently through a lot of kind of diving really deep into trauma and understanding and healing from the death of my father, I'm now understanding really my entire approach to my whole life back then. If that didn't happen stateside, if those injuries didn't happen stateside in a training environment for war, it would have been potentially infinite worse because of the potential for other people to be injured or killed. And so that had to happen. But then also the meaning behind my father's death I also have gratitude for now because it has given me meaning in my own life and has impacted the lives of many, many other people now through the way that I live my life and the mantra that I've carried on from him to live a life ever forward. But I also don't think that if I had suffered those injuries and had to radically revisit the physical self, I don't believe I would have chosen my next chapter in life that I did. I wouldn't have gone to school for exercise science. I wouldn't have become a coach and a trainer. I wouldn't have gone to grad school for health promotion and nutrition. I wouldn't have become a health coach. I wouldn't have done all these things. And I mean, there's always a chance maybe, but like I wouldn't have had as radical of a reason why without literally my shit being snapped up. I just can't imagine what would have prompted me to go down that path if it were not for suffering the injuries that I did, both physically and emotionally. So you end up getting discharged from the military, and you end up obviously having these medical and physical issues. How did you begin to process, or did you process, any of what you went through during the military and also losing your father at that time? And then what was the path like for you to then become a health professional? Yeah, I didn't process any of it until that story I shared earlier with my girlfriend at the time being on the couch. Like that that was about 12 years later. I was off and on maybe here and there with a therapist a couple times a year, but up until that point it was just suppress, suppress, suppress. And so, like I said, the nature of my injuries kind of I felt forced my hand to have to learn the human body, human experience in a much more technical professional way. So when I decided, I I literally, I was medically retired from the army at about age 24. I got out. I literally 
sign off a base with my cane in the back seat, my wheelchair on the roof of my SUV because I still needed both. I drove from Texas to Virginia and I toured campus and enrolled in school with my mom actually to help me because I was this 24-year-old kid who was disabled, hobbling around on a cane, having to take frequent breaks. I remember kind of like seeing the look on some people's faces like, you're signing up for exercise science classes? Like this, you sure? Like, absolutely. (laughs) I'm not going to be using these anymore to a certain extent, but like I need to take my power back. I need to take my body back. And so I want to learn it as best I can. So about halfway through my undergrad, we had to do some internships that really solidified, oh, I actually like this way more than just personal reasons. I'm learning things that are helping me rehabilitate and take my power and take my body back in ways that I wasn't getting through other therapies and stuff. It was definitely not through the VA system, but I actually enjoyed it. I was in internships and working with people and you know, helping people get better in their own unique ways. And I was like, I actually like this. And so maybe this will be my next thing. So then my final internship, my final year, I kind of solidified, uh, yeah, I want to do this. And I wound up actually working for a company that I did an internship with for a while and then just went as far as I could with it. I went from kind of like a glorified part-time position as a health coach. I was also working as a group fitness instructor, training people, um, taking kind of like a lot of random fitness jobs, I think as a lot of people do when they're getting started, and then really found my footing in health coaching. I found this company, I actually should say, this company found me, that was a concierge medical practice that also offered fitness and nutrition coaching. I was like, this is exactly what I need and what I want in my life. Like, this is perfect. So I then went on to do that for about three or four years. I covered two offices in Virginia and D.C. So I had my own patients and clients every day. Uh, I also wound up becoming the wellness director for a couple of years there. So I, I trained and managed about seven to nine other coaches up and down the East Coast. And so I was running this department, training, working with people every day. Um, helping people get better, stay better through both allopathic traditional care methods, but also how are you fueling your body? How are you fueling your mind? What can we do to kind of bridge all of these things together for you and your your doctor? And so I, I just, I was like, I, this is my life's calling. Like I have been built and broken and rebuilt to do this for myself because I have the most affinity towards it and the most love for it. And I think a very deep rooted why. Also a hell of a lot of experience I remember working with a lot of people and like, oh, I, I didn't go to the gym because like oh, I stubbed my toe or like I'm just really tired. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, try learning how to walk again, you know, and still making it into therapy four times a week. You know, there are a lot of times that I didn't want to get out of bed and I'm just kind of being facetious now. I Sometimes I had to pull that card in that kind of way, but I felt like I was just a very good example for the types of people I was working with of what we can achieve when we decide we want it. And I would then help them solidify why they wanna do it and we would get to work. So I just really felt like it was the best thing for me. Everything I went through sucked, it really, really did, but it put me on the next career path that I loved. Yeah, and then I've changed and pivoted many ways over the years, You know, from doing it for other people to running my own online health coaching business to running a very health and wellness centered podcast and just keeping wellness and human optimization internally and externally my North Star and just sharing everything that I'm doing that supports that or how I'm failing forward through that. And then hopefully it helps other people in some other way as well. So this kind of brings us back to towards the beginning of our conversation where in 2015, you had this 
aha moment with your then girlfriend, your now wife, who kind of woke you up from this, mm -hmm. this yeah, panic, literally. <laughs> if you will, and then yeah, forced you to really work on your mental health. And you've talked about some of the things that you've done, certain modalities and mechanisms to help with your mental health. And specifically, like what were those first like six months like, that healing journey for you from the time where you know, May wakes you up, gives you this tough love talk, and you, you realize that you have to work on yourself. What was the what was the initial process like? You know, I've done everything you could ever imagine, you know, paying a lot of money, going to clinics, doing all the things. But honestly, Doug, like it started so easy and so simple. And, and I think this is where I think the person listening, watching, I hope you really lean into this because Sometimes we might need all the things, or maybe we'll get to all the things. We might need professional help. We might need community. We might need a lot of really unique tools. But the very first thing I did, I think it was even the next day, I walked out of my apartment. I walked maybe two blocks up. There was a CVS on the corner. I bought a notebook, like this mead marble cover. We've all seen it, probably use it in high school. Just note, it was like $3. And I, I didn't really know why. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no training, but I was like, I, I got to get this stuff out. And I just began to brain dump, man. I just opened up the pages and started just writing. I guess you could call it journaling, but for me, it was just really brain dumping. And I was just, I, I started with that event. I started with why am I putting pen to paper right here, right now? What happened recently? And then next thing I know is just pages, pages, pages of just these things pouring out of me that I didn't even know were there. I didn't know they were there at that level. And so that cheap little notebook of brain dumping, journaling, whatever was my start. And then it evolved into, oh, like, okay, I'm feeling, clearly I'm feeling these things because I'm writing them. So they're real. They're inside me somewhere. Let me dive deeper into there. Let me research these words, these things, these feelings, these emotions. So that then kind of put me on the stepping stone path to books. That's when I found self-help. My very first book, you know, through this process was um, actually the first two was Ryan Holiday's Ego is the Enemy and the Obstacle is the Way. And then soon after that, I found Daily Stoic. And I've been reading that book every day ever since, like eight years now, I read the same book every day. And so then I discovered like podcasts and I just got so consumed with, you know, self-help because it's kind of like in the gym, right? You get the newbie gains. You're the first, it's the first time you go work out and you're like, oh my God, like two weeks ago, I could barely lift the barbell off the ground. Now I'm doing 135. It was so soothing and so contagious I never experienced that. I thought you could only experience that in the physical self. So I, I was like I was reading as much as I could, listening to all the things, going to any like conferences that I could. And then also I began to just talk. So I think this is a really other important concept to mental health that as important as it is for all the things that you're doing, doing with yourself, for yourself, kind of like internally, it needs to be a two-way valve, I think. This stuff needs to come out externally as well. We need to find a support system, find somebody, find a place somewhere, someone, something to get this stuff out. Because as great as it is to like internalize and process it in a healthy way, getting that sounding board, getting feedback, getting just things out to hear your own self say it was this next level form of therapy and healing that I didn't even know was a thing. You know, and then, so years later, and that was 2015, here we are 2023, I progress all the way through, you know, going back to traditional therapy in person, remote to, you know, literally making it a part of my life and my profession and sharing a lot of content and podcasts and stuff around mental health. But even going the full scope of, you know, plant medicine, psychotherapy, 
psychedelic is psychotherapy. For me in particular, going, working with a therapist, going into a clinic under ketamine-assisted psychotherapy gave me the most healing in just three sessions I have ever experienced and up to that point of 16 years trying to do it on my own. It's just, there are so many ways that we can heal once we choose to work on ourselves and we choose healing as an option. But man, it started with a $3 notebook and ended with a much, much more expensive <laughs> ketamine psychotherapy session. But every single minute and every single dollar has been worth it because it has healed me in those moments. But also it has given me tools now in my personal toolbox that I can recall on, I can lean on, on demand now, you know, in my head and in my heart. You mentioned that the expensive forms of therapy were definitely helpful for you. And you also mentioned that it was the simple things that really like mattered most for you and that you believe matter most for others. And I think one of the simple things that matters most for people when they're going through hard times is community. And I've, I've heard you talk about that you have a hard time with like maintaining like male friendships. I'd like to like unpack like like where that comes from, like how have you come to terms with that? And then like, what are some of the things you're doing to improve that? Yeah, man, I just, I can't keep a guy. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm a very hetero, straight, married guy, but you know, let's kind of just, let's take a step back for a second. Let's just look at the facts of my life. At about age four-ish, my father joined the military. So he's away. That leaves me at home with a very loving step. My mother at the time, soon to be stepmother, you know, a year or so down the line, a very loving grandmother, um, but also, so a lot of immediate removal of a father figure, insertion of more mothers, more female figures in my life. And the only other real male figure in my life at the time was my dad's father, who was uh, an alcoholic and physically and emotionally abusive to everyone in his life. So naturally, a four-year-old, five-year-old is going to run away from that shit and stay with all these women that don't hurt him physically and emotionally. My parents, when they separated, my sister left to go live with my, my mom. My brother stayed with me. So for several years before he left to go then live with my mom, I had one other guy in my life, one other literal brother. He left me. For several years during that time, my father was active duty. You know, he's stationed, you know, different spots in the world. He's in the Persian Gulf. So, you know, he's gone and gone. All I'm left with are just women. Through high school, my best friend, a woman, I joined the military and the brothers that I had, a lot of great relationships, men and women, but the guys that I really connected with the most, I, I will still to this day call them brothers. Unfortunately, their experiences in the military were too much for them and wound up taking their lives, both committed suicide. Two other guys in my military career that were brothers to me at the time had their own shit going on in their life and just kind of like ghosted me. Those are the facts. That's been my experience. You know, then my father dies at, you know, 19. I'm kind of jumping around all over. But the, the through line I'm trying to make is that I kind of really was set up this way. And I think this is an important way to look at our lives when we're trying to understand really why do I feel this way? Why do I, I think this is just how it's supposed to be? What are next steps? A lot of this stuff, you know, it's not really our choice. It's just we're, we're not a victim, but we are the product of our circumstances. And my circumstances were just that. A lot of female figures in my life that gave me love and nurtured me and protected me and vice versa. And pretty much every male, meaningful male relationship in my life either died, committed suicide, or was just gone out of my life. 
And I have no reason as to why, no control over it. So that's my truth and my reality. And so that's what I kind of have this subconscious preconceived notion going into a lot of male relationships of, you know, what's the point of getting to know you? You're probably just going to die or leave me. And I know that's very, a very morbid way to talk, but, you know, subconsciously, I think that's what was happening. Why should I invest more of my time, energy, and resources? Why should I love you? Why should I open up to you when I don't know how long you're going to be here to do the same for me? And that's a very meaningful thing for me. Like I need that and want that, but I've been hurt and shut down and cut off by so many other guys before. And it hasn't been until recently, the last couple of years, getting a couple new guys in my life that like, I'm, I'm like, wait, wait, are we becoming friends? Like it, it's this whole new weird <laughs> dynamic as an adult, you know, in your late twenties and thirties now of, you know, I think we're becoming friends. Should we become friends of other men in my life that like, you're my brother. Like, I, I love you. We, I can just sit with you and talk or we can sit and do nothing. We can go to the gym. We can talk about our relationships. We can get coffee, grab a beer, whatever. And like, and it all just feels right and safe and feels very loving and even still masculine at the same time. So, you know, I kind of expand on that a lot to kind of just paint the picture of myself and why I feel that way. But I'd be willing to bet maybe another guy listening right now if you get real honest and critical, not judgmental, but critical of maybe why you feel the same way, have you been a product of your circumstances up to this point? Now that you are informed and now here's your moment of awareness, you know, give yourself a little bit more grace. Try to understand maybe why you don't have the types of relationships with the types of people you have in your life. It's not really all our fault. Sometimes we just need to understand where we are and what got us here so that we can better take the next step forward really get clarity on what we do want. Because I do want meaningful male relationships in my life. I think it's very important as a man to kind of have that balance. Also, you know, I joke all the time, I'm just always surrounded by women. I, I live in the sea of estrogen and it's like always girls night for me, which I mean, <laughs> could be worse. I mean, I have some amazing, beautiful, loving, warm women in my life. I cannot complain whatsoever. But I mean, which, you know, I'm so glad we connected when you were here in LA, man. I'm like, oh, cool another dude let's get some dude time you know it's a totally different energy <laughs> yeah man i can imagine it's definitely tough to open up let your guard down and develop some trust with other guys in your life given where you came from given what's happened to you throughout the course of your life and i think trust is a one other thing i want to say right there man you, that's such a key word um, one thing i didn't really touch on is spending six years active duty in the military during a time of war really imprints relationships in a really unique way. Trust being the most important thing there. So what I went through was this level of trust. Like I trust you with my life and vice versa. That is very, very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult to get outside of the military. And so I've always, I've always struggled even more with male relationships now as a civilian you know, and honestly, like the guys that I do have a really deep connection with now are former military themselves. So it's kind of like, for me, it's almost like a, a subconscious prerequisite in order for us to be bros is, you know, we need to have gone through some of the same shit together. I'm not saying it's fair or right or like as an ultimatum, but just like, again, honest dissection truth of, of what I've been through and what works best for me now is that it's, it's just this deep level of trust that I've only experienced with other military guys or military personnel in general. Yeah. I mean, you got to be able to form relationships with people that you relate to people that you feel get you and understand like where you've come from. And then also like being able to have just like deep level conversations and not just surface level stuff so that you can feel comfortable 
like being vulnerable and opening up like how has like has this all impacted your ability to be vulnerable with the guys you have developed relationships with 100% I mean there's no question the level to which I can get vulnerable with another human with another guy first and foremost I believe is only to the same level that I can get vulnerable with myself it's ludicrous to think that I can open up or at least open up consistently to another human, another guy in ways that I have not even like expressed or allowed myself to open up to before. Might be one or two nuances there, but you know, vulnerability with myself first and foremost has to happen and has to continue to happen so that I have the right EQ, the right emotional intelligence, the right radar on, so to speak, to pick up on that, that wording, that energy, that body language in another human, in another guy, because there's just a level of safety and security and familiarity in there. Um, but I first need to know that in myself so that I can seek it out and figure it out in others. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about identity. And I have understood like one of my best friends was in the Force Recon Marine in the military and was a did um, served a lot of went on a lot of tours and served quite a bit of time in there. And from talking to him, I understand that one of the main things that people in the military struggle with is identity, like coming home because they've lost that sense of self. You know, coming back home from the military. I want to talk about identity as it relates to your story. In that, it seems obviously you had a strong identity in the military. You had an identity, like a connection with your father. You had a strong identity in the health and fitness world. And now you've kind of, from what I understand, are transitioned out of the health and fitness world into just being chase and focusing more on mental health and sharing openly and authentically. What's that process been like? 35 years of trying to be somebody else. That's what that process has been like. Doug, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who Chase was, what he wanted. I didn't know the identity of, of James Chase tuning until like two and a half years ago, man. Not to go down another rabbit hole, but I think a lot of contributing factors play a role here of, you know, being the oldest brother, not coming from a lot of money and, you know, choosing the path that I did in life, such as the military and a lot of different things. I was always really good at being whatever and whoever anyone else needed me to be. And, and not a like I'm fake or I can put on a, a face or pretend but I had such a lack of identity of myself. I don't know if it was intentional or, or again, product of my circumstances, but I recognized who I needed to be for the people that were around me for that time period as being more important than whoever I thought I was or wanted to be or needed. A big brother joining the military so that my family didn't have to suffer the financial burden of college tuition, of being present and being emotionless and, and stoic during the death of my father so that nobody else had to worry about me to suppressing every painful experience I had ever had so that it was never a problem for anybody else to my detriment to being the type of coach and trainer that was popular at the time or the, the coach that people would come to and ask about, Hey, I read this, my friends doing that. Like I would completely change the way that I did my business and how I would work with people to give them what they wanted instead of me standing firm and this is who I am, this is what I believe, and this is what I also believe to be the best avenue for you as well. So up until I was 35 years old and I decided to embark on the most intense form of therapy and healing that I had ever done to that point, which I already talked about was this ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, 
And getting such radical healing and love from those few sessions not only helped me with that and my mental health, but also cracked me wide open in the sense of who am I? What do I want? What do I believe to be true? Why do I hold these truths in my life? Why do I believe this to be right, that to be wrong? It's just because that's what I was taught, what I was told. You know, on top of everything I just shared, growing up in a Southern Baptist house, you know, very conservative household, going to church every Sunday, going to a private Christian school. I mean, religion, structure, six years of the military. Again, product of my circumstances. It's almost like I never had a fighting chance of having free will. You know, I, that's my personal experience. Some people might disagree, but in some ways, quite literally, you know, I, I was brainwashed. I was trained to not think, to just do. And I was fine with that because I saw what it did for other people. It gave them safety and security and a lot of other different things. But finally at 35, when I went through what I went through and I chose myself for the first time, my identity has been me. And in understanding my identity now, of I want to be Chase and I want to share Chase with the world. Yeah, to your, I think, original question, man, I have really realized the ways in which I, I did struggle with identity and identity loss. And I know I'm not alone. You know, when we transition from one job to another, when we leave the military to go to become a civilian again or civilian to soldier the first time, we stop one career, go to another, we, we pivot in our business and our life, whatever. That is an identity change, perhaps even identity loss. And it wasn't until I decided to own and make my own identity did I realize all the other ways in which I had identity grief and loss before. And so what led to you wanting to pursue this ketamine-assisted therapy? Was there an event? Were you just kind of tired of feeling a certain way? Or were you just like, you know what, I'm just going to go try this thing for fun? You know, I mean, honestly, it was really all the above, man. All the above because I was at a place in my then finally diagnosed PTSD that I need more, I want more healing. I need a more intense therapy. And so that was on the table. I had been studying it for about a year. I've been looking at science and studies and literature and talking to people who had gone through it, you know, really understanding it from afar of like, this is more than just like a party drug thing. This is something that has radical healing potential in the right circumstances, more importantly, with the right intention. But also at the time, my wife, who was a, a new graduate of a, being a family nurse practitioner, was uh, embarking in her new career, and she actually became the new FNP at this mental health clinic that specialized in CAP, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. So it was almost as if like, all right, universe, I'm curious about it. It's trending. It's popular. You know, the VA is even using it now. My wife is administering it. She's running it. She's literally giving people their lives back. This is the perfect storm for me should I choose to face it. And that's exactly what I did. On my 35th birthday, I went in for my first CAP session. I mean, we could literally talk for hours more on what each of those next three sessions were for me. But I'll tell you this. In three sessions of CAP, I advanced into the acceptance phase of grief in a way that I did not know was possible. I never thought I would ever, ever be able to feel the way that I do now. And honestly, to be able to talk about this stuff now, I thought that was just a storybook. And so for me to have that experience, I mean, changed my entire life. It changed my entire life, but it was almost as if like, 
everything I had done up to that point was for this experience because I don't think I would have been prepared in any other way for that experience or for this type of healing, for this type of deep therapy work. You mentioned grief and how that experience helped you, you know, gain a new level of acceptance for the grief that you had been carrying. Where are you at with like forgiveness? I mean, because it seems like you've had a lot of things happen to you in a negative way. I know you, it seems like you've had some distrust towards the military and everything that kind of happened with what happened with your dad. Like, what's that process been like? With grief? With forgiveness. You know, I mean, ultimately, it's a really interesting question. I don't know how much personally for me, forgiveness with anybody else or anything else or anywhere else really matters because of the level of forgiveness I have for myself now. It's almost like if I can forgive me for all the ways that I felt or all the pain that I was going through, all the beliefs that I had that clearly didn't serve me then, but I have an understanding of how they serve me now. It's like, that's the only thing that matters because from that point, no matter where I'm going now or in the future or the version of me in the past that I want to look at of that person, this person, this experience, they did me wrong, this hurt, this was traumatic, that was loss. I personally don't feel like it matters because I have ultimate forgiveness for myself and understanding of myself in those experiences. Yeah, that all makes sense. I mean, because I think at the end of the day, like being able to forgive yourself like is everything and being able to come to terms with all that is so important in life. And the last thing I want to ask you is obviously the message that your dad has like instilled in you is now it's a message that you pay forward to people that listen to your show, the people that you spend time with. And it's this ever forward message, like living a life ever forward. How has that message gotten you through, you know, hard times that you've gone through over the last, you know, 10 years or so? I mean, those two words have unique meaning to me. Like you said, they were my dad's mantra and it's been away from me and my family to kind of carry the torch. But it really doesn't matter what the words are. At its core, it's been an anchor for me. It's been a tether for me to just remind myself that no matter what I'm going through, I can detach. I can go to my safe place, so to speak. You know, a lot of people have a, a literal tether, like a, a bracelet, a, a necklace, a a ring, a token, a coin, a memento, something that we go to, that we reminisce about, that we reread, we touch, we hold, we do whatever, because it, it gets us out of where we are here and now to then, a better place, a better time, a safer place, a safer time. And so Ever Forward is just my version of that. I think probably everyone's gone through something that there is something unique in that experience that you can tether yourself back to to pull you into a better direction or again, a safer place. But you know, it's, it's kind of evolved for me over the years. You know, I used to think it was very literal of just keep going, just no matter what, just keep going one foot in front of the other. And that doesn't quite hold as much weight for me or with me anymore. That has its time and place. There's definitely a time and place to buckle down, to have grit and just like, all right, cool. You know what? Just going to keep going. But honestly, the last couple of years, it's really turned into a reminder of I will be able to move forward once I take a pause and get still right here, right now. I will be able to take a step forward, the right step forward, once I take inventory and have gratitude and respect and, and can take the lesson out of what I'm going through right here, right now. 
So it's now almost like it's turned into, I will get the right to move forward. I will earn moving ever forward by being as present as possible right here, right now. And kind of a secondary mantra that I've attached to that the last couple of years is that you are exactly where you're supposed to be. And if I choose to really embody that to its core of where I am right now sucks, where I am right now is amazing, and anywhere in between, if I believe that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be right now, then that is going to provide me the most clarity for where I want to move forward to, the direction and the step that I want to take so that I can keep moving ever forward in the right way comes from being as present as possible as often as possible. And I wanted to thank you for being so present during our conversation, man, and being so open and honest and vulnerable. I think people are going to really resonate and relate to like a lot of the stuff that you said. And just wanted to thank you once again for coming on. My pleasure, man. You know, Doug, you know, people like you make all this stuff possible. You know, I, I know my story and I tell my story somewhat often, but you know, people like yourself, you know, if you're not asking the questions, I'm not giving answers and there's nothing for anybody to learn. So, you know, it takes two to tango here, man. So thank you. Appreciate you, man. And likewise, I mean, I really enjoy being on your show as well and you asking some some great questions. And I'm sure, like I said, people are going to relate to you. They're going to want to listen to your podcast. They're going to want to follow along the journey. Where's the best place to connect? Yeah, so I'm pretty much one of two places. Daily, I'm sharing my journey, what I'm going through, what I'm liking, what I'm not. You know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual stuff on Instagram at Chase underscore tuning. And then you can find the longer format expansion of all those things on Ever Forward Radio. Uh, we drop two episodes a week, every Monday, Wednesday, wherever you enjoy podcasts. Awesome, man. I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. And for those listening, what I invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Maybe it was something that we talked about as far as mental health or Chase's time in the military or what the process was like of losing his dad and healing from that or identity, his health journey. And whatever the takeaway was, make sure to tag Chase and tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback. We once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. We'll see you next time.